asking the right question can greatly impact your future. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional? Certified financial planner certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Previously on the James Brown Mystery, Jackie confides in Adrian after that awful night in the woods. And I told her everything that happened. That's when we decided that we were going to protect each other. And Adrian warns her about the machine. She says it's a shadowy criminal organization with government connections that surrounds the Godfather of Soul and is likely watching them too. She said one of us is going to die, or both of us. And what did you think about that? How'd that hit you? I believed her. It all leads to a high-speed chase that has Jackie and Adrian afraid for their lives. And I said, we're here, me and Adrian, and somebody tried to shoot us and kill us. In the mid-90s, shortly after her divorce, Jackie Hollander dated a man who would never let her take his picture. The longer she and Steve dated, the stranger this became. She was in love with him. She thought they might get married. And still, he refused to be photographed with her. Finally, after about nine months, Jackie asked herself some hard questions about this relationship. She began to wonder if the whole thing was a lie which made her want a picture of Steve even more. So Jackie got creative. One night, they were in a bar together, this crowded room with dim red lights, a country band on stage, and peanut shells on the floor. Steve was drinking a scotch, and Jackie had a cherry Coke. And I saw this girl walking around selling flowers and taking pictures. And I thought, wow, this is it. This is my chance. Jackie pulled this woman aside in the ladies' room and offered her $20 if she could find a way to take a picture of Steve. She said, okay, I'll do it. What I'll do is I'm going to just tell him that my camera is broke and that I can't get it to work and I just need a test picture and see if he goes for that. So Jackie went back to join Steve, and the woman walked up and asked if she could test her malfunctioning Polaroid camera. He goes, no, we don't want a picture, no pictures, absolutely not. But Steve had been drinking, so he was a little off his game. And the camera woman was persistent. Finally, she pointed her camera at them and pressed the button. A photo slid out of the Polaroid camera. Then she walked away, okay? And I went to the bathroom to pay her, and she handed me the picture. I'm looking at this picture right now. Steve, um, he's got some size to him, some broad shoulders. Uh, He's wearing a denim jacket. He's got a beard that's reddish brown, maybe more more brown than red, and it's going a little bit gray at the chin. And his hairs are kind of long, but it's also, I can see the hairline receding. He's smiling, and at least in this picture, his smile... It looks kind. You know, I look at him and I'm like, oh, that's a guy I'd like to talk with. Well, Saddam Hussein had pictures like that, too, and so did Theodore Bundy. Jackie acquired her first and only picture of the mysterious Steve in January 1996, near the end of a very odd nine-month relationship. Days later, Jackie learned something that shook her to her core. Her friend Adrian Brown had died while recovering from plastic surgery in California. Not long after that, Jackie became convinced that Adrian had been murdered. 
and that Steve had something to do with it. From CNN, this is The James Brown Mystery. I'm your host, Thomas Lake. This is Episode 4, The Angel of Death. Next message, saved Tuesday at 1.08 p.m. Yeah, hello, Jackie. This is Steve. That's Steve, Jackie's mysterious boyfriend from 1995. Decades later, she doesn't know where he is. She's not sure he ever told her his real last name. But Jackie knows he was real and that some very bad things happened when he entered her life. She has proof he was real. That Polaroid from the bar and this cassette tape recording from her old answering machine. It's uh, 9.25 and I'm still at the Atlanta airport. I'll talk to you next week. See ya. Like so many other stories from Jackie's life, this one is incomplete. Some pieces are missing. Some parts may never be explained. But there's no doubt it has something to do with someone who casts a shadow across the last four decades of her life. James Brown. About seven years after her horrifying encounter with Brown and his fan in the woods of South Carolina, Jackie made a huge decision. She wanted to have Brown prosecuted for rape. Jackie's credibility had been damaged in 1992 when a new book by the prominent music writer Stanley Booth came out saying she and James Brown had been lovers. Jackie vehemently denied this and sued Booth, but she didn't win the suit. Jackie admitted she'd told Booth more than one story about what happened in the woods, but said she eventually told him she'd been raped. And Booth confirmed this in an interview with me. When I asked Booth if he thought James Brown raped Jackie, he told me, Hell, I don't have any idea. He probably did. Jackie wanted her good name back. So in 1995, she hired a former FBI special agent in Richard Ratcliffe to administer a polygraph test. Do you understand this test concerns whether you were forcibly taken across state lands and raped by James Brown? Yes. For Jackie, the test was excruciating. It forced her to relive the worst experience of her life. As Ratcliffe asked his questions, she stared at the white wall in front of her. The wall was like a movie screen on which she was watching herself in a horror movie. Except all of it was real. Why am I trembling? If I were telling the truth. I believe you, Jackie. Test shows you're being truthful. I just wonder, like, how it felt to hear someone say, I believe you. The most wonderful feeling in the world. After the test... Jackie was exhausted. She went home and went to bed. Ratcliffe mailed a copy of her videotape to the prosecutor's office in South Carolina, and Jackie made an appointment to share her story. Ratcliffe wrote a note with the tape saying, In my opinion, the test clearly supported her credibility, and there is no doubt the rape occurred. It was around this time that Steve entered Jackie's life, at a Mexican restaurant in Atlanta where she was waiting tables. And then he said, what is a girl like you doing working in a place like this? Jackie was 39 and recently divorced from Dean Daughtry. The restaurant didn't have many customers then, so it was pretty noticeable when three men in pressed suits started coming in every day around 5 o'clock and sitting at the bar for hours. They drank their drinks and stared at her. One of these men was Steve. One of those nights... Steve told her she looked like a rock and roll singer. He had a lighter in his hand, and he was playing with the lighter. 
And he made sure that the side of the lighter with what was on it, White Beach, I was able to see because of my father and my father's career in the Navy. I was able to immediately identify the lighter. I said, oh, wow, you must be with the Navy. And he said, I am. I was. And he told me that he was a former Navy SEAL. Jackie was intrigued, but she did have a sense that he was a little too friendly. It crossed her mind that he could be an investigator for the prosecutor's office in South Carolina, sent to check her out. Jackie planned to visit the prosecutor soon to report that James Brown had raped her in the woods. And now this Navy SEAL was giving her lots of attention. I knew that the fish hook was going down, but I thought if they're going to this extent to make sure I'm okay, I'll play along with this. I thought he was cute. I did. Jackie thought Steve was stylish and intelligent, too. When he asked her to dinner a few days after their first conversation, she said yes. She brought along her friend, Kathy, just to be safe. He looked at me and he said, look, I asked you out. I didn't ask her out either. And I said, well, if you want to go with me, she's coming with me because I don't know if you're Jack the Ripper or who you are. I'm not going to be alone in a car with you. I don't know who you are. You could kill me. So Steve took Jackie and Kathy to Cracker Barrel. A few minutes into dinner, the ladies went to the bathroom. Kathy said Steve seemed classy and educated, a really nice guy. This endorsement meant a lot to Jackie. After dinner, Jackie dropped Kathy off at home and took Steve to one of her favorite places, DeKalb Peachtree Airport, where she and her father used to watch the planes take off and land. And I remember him watching my eyes with the planes coming in always watching my eyes and my movement. And he said, you know, I think there's a lot more to you than you're saying, other than you're just working at this restaurant. Jackie told him it was a long story. And he goes, well, I've got all the time in the world. So I kind of said, you know, I'm in a problem with an entertainer and I'm going to stand up. And I had to take a polygraph test. And it was like he knew everything. He was just letting me say it. And then he kissed me. <laughs> and um, he told me I was pretty. And no one had told me I was pretty in a long time. And that was kind of nice to hear. Yeah, Jackie Steve. Just going to say hello. Talk to you tomorrow. Bye. After this, Jackie and Steve began seeing each other regularly, although she still knew very little about him. The last name he gave her may or may not have been real, so I'm not going to share it on the podcast. But here's what we do know. Steve smoked Marlboro Lights. He drank scotch and water. He said when he was a Navy SEAL, a bomb went off underwater and burned his hands. He had the burn marks to prove it. And there was something about the way Steve walked that made her believe he'd been in the Navy. Slightly unsteady, frequently shifting his weight. And it's called sea legs. And sea legs come from years on a ship. And he had sea legs. You could tell. Yes, he walked like my father. Early in the relationship, when Steve told her he worked as a bank consultant, she didn't quite believe him. When I said, you look like your government, you're probably FBI, and he started laughing, and he goes, don't insult me or us ever with those pieces of crap. He wasn't denying that he was with the government, but he was basically saying, like, whatever it is, like, I'm better than the FBI. Correct. So I knew he was somebody, but I didn't know what. 
But Steve was a big, strong guy who made Jackie feel safe. This feeling was so powerful that it overcame any lingering doubts she had about Steve. Jackie, it's a real pleasure to hear your voice on your answering machine. This is Steve, just calling to say hello. They kept seeing each other. One day, Jackie bought Steve a present, a piece of jewelry with a nod to his nautical history. I had gotten him this little gold anchor with a cross on it, and I was going to surprise him. So she drove to his apartment complex without telling him in advance. And then she saw something really weird. I pulled in, and there were all these white cars in the parking lot. And they all said government on the tags. It was just this long line of them. There probably was 10 government white cars. They all looked just alike. And I went to the door, and I was knocking on it. And I could hear all this. It sounded like chairs were hitting each other and... I mean, it was crazy. Did you think that somehow you had caused that by knocking on the door? Well, obviously I had. It wasn't doing it until I knocked on the door. It was totally quiet. Oh, wow. And he opened it, and there's still the chain across. And he goes, you can't come in. You have to leave. Really stern. I mean, it was just a totally different person. And he goes, I'll call you later, but you can't come. With that, Jackie left Steve's apartment complex, and fast. She couldn't help thinking she'd accidentally busted up a secret meeting of government agents. But like Steve, she could play it cool. Later, when he called to invite her back, the government cars were gone. I didn't mention to him I'd seen all the cars. I just kind of said, so, I have a present for you. And he was like, oh, thank you. Jackie didn't ask questions about this very strange thing she'd just seen. She and Steve had an unusual relationship. In their conversations, some things were just off-limits. He insisted on keeping some parts of his story behind a locked door. And after a while, Jackie came to accept that. Jackie still wanted to believe the best about Steve. Maybe someone in the U.S. government knew Jackie was in danger because she was trying to have James Brown prosecuted for the assault. Was Steve here to protect her? Steve did nothing to dissuade her from this theory. He goes, you have the best bodyguard that is alive in this country. I had fallen madly in love with him. About two months into their relationship, Jackie was scheduled to visit South Carolina and tell the prosecutor she'd been raped by James Brown. Just before her trip, Steve hit her with an emotional hand grenade. He told Jackie he had to move away. The company he worked for was transferring him to Dallas. Can you imagine what that does to a girl that is totally in love with you? I fell to pieces. As Jackie tried to take in this bad news from Steve, other things started going wrong, too. Jackie's car broke down, so she asked her friend Kathy to drive her to South Carolina. And then the night before we were scheduled to leave, she called me and somebody had gone and taken a baseball bat and busted out all the glass of her car. I asked Kathy about this. She confirmed that her windshield had been broken right before the trip. Was someone trying to stop Jackie from getting to South Carolina? So she couldn't drive me. The only person I had left was Dean, and I called. Dean Daughtry, remember, was Jackie's ex-husband. It was awkward to ask him for a ride from Georgia to South Carolina so she could accuse another man of rape. Still, Dean agreed to drive her. Kathy went with them. 
But something weird happened on the way there. Jackie says Dean's brakes started malfunctioning. This was a third vehicle-related mishap leading up to her appointment with the prosecutor. But they still made it to Aiken on time. So Jackie went in and met with Barbara Morgan, the chief prosecutor in Aiken County, South Carolina. She looked at me and she said, we have your package here sent by Mr. Radcliffe, your polygraph test. The polygraph test was not definitive proof of anything, but it did show that an experienced investigator had found Jackie's story credible. Jackie also had brought with her items she saved from her night in the van with Brown, items that could be tested in a crime lab. The dress, the pillowcase, my boots, uh, my shirt, my bandana, everything that I had was there. I said, I have all of my evidence So even though she was too scared to go to the police after Brown raped her in the woods, she had prepared for the day when she might come forward. Morgan, the prosecutor, confirmed that she met with Jackie that day in 1995 regarding an accusation of rape against James Brown. She assigned an investigator to look into it. Although the incident had happened seven years earlier, it wasn't too late to press charges. There was no statute of limitations on criminal sexual conduct in South Carolina. During her meeting with the prosecutor, Jackie says she also brought up something else related to James Brown. Jackie talked about her friend, Adrian Brown, who'd repeatedly called 911 to accuse her husband of domestic violence. And in April, Brown was arrested for assault with the intent to kill after allegedly beating his wife with a pipe and firing shots into her car. That year, 1988, Brown kept getting in trouble with the law. From an alleged drug, gun, and police chase incident over two days in September, Brown faces close to a dozen charges. Now authorities claim they have enough evidence to put James Brown in jail for up to five years. Later that year, a jury found Brown guilty of failing to stop for police. He was sentenced to six years in prison, but got out on parole early in 1991. He went home to his wife, Adrian. The violence continued. Just this week, soul singer James Brown was arrested and charged with battering his wife. He's been charged with domestic violence twice before. And this is why, when she was at the prosecutor's office in South Carolina, Jackie remembers asking Barbara Morgan to look out for Adrian. According to Jackie, Morgan said she would. And then she said to me, I'm going to make you a promise that if I get one more call, of James Brown beating Adrian, I am going to bury him, and he will never see the light of day. When I asked Morgan about this, she denied saying anything like that to Jackie. But the prosecutor did tell me she warned James Brown not to hurt Adrian, with words to the effect of, Mr. Brown, I'm solicitor now. Don't mess up. After the meeting between Jackie and Barbara Morgan was over and the mechanic had fixed Dean's car, Jackie, Kathy, and Dean returned to Atlanta. But just a few months later, Adrian was found beaten up at home in South Carolina with a swollen lip and a bloody nose. He hit me again, Adrian told an officer. So James Brown was arrested again and charged with criminal domestic violence. Brown's company would later release a statement saying that Adrian had retracted the domestic violence allegations. This time, though, the Aiken County Sheriff's Office would prosecute James Brown, with or without Adrian's testimony. She, she had black eyes. She had bruises. And the last time I saw Adrian was at the hospital. 
This is Kay Mixon, a longtime advocate for victims of domestic violence. In the 80s and 90s, she got to know Adrian Brown quite well. I went in to see her and talk with her. They gave her prescriptions for antibiotics because of the bruises and things. And she had no money to buy the prescriptions. I bought them myself for her. She said, I know everything about James because they were together a long time. And she said, he's not going to let me ever leave him because I know too much. I asked Mixon if Adrian told her what she meant by, I know too much. No, she would not divulge that because she knew that if anything got out, that she would be dead. I think other people that he was involved with also were probably guilty of a lot of stuff that she knew about. What Mixon says here sounds a lot like Jackie's description of the James Brown machine. Jackie says Adrian told her the machine was a secret criminal organization that surrounded and protected the Godfather of Soul. Adrian was afraid of the machine, maybe even more afraid than she was of her husband. Anyway, after visiting her in the hospital, Kay Mixon tried to get Adrian into a shelter for victims of domestic violence. But Adrian insisted on going back to the country estate in Beach Island, South Carolina, where she lived with James Brown. I drove her home, but could not get close to the house because there was a great big iron gate. And I watched her squeeze herself through that iron gate. And it was a mile down to the house, and she walked in the rain to that house. Adrian forgot something in Mixon's car, something she'd thrown on over her other clothes to keep off the rain when the ambulance took her to the hospital. Right now, in my closet, I have Adrian's robe that she wore to the hospital that last time. She left it in my car. It's a velour, royal blue trimmed in gold. A few weeks after she left Adrian at the Iron Gate, Mixon still hadn't given back the robe. And then it was too late. I was watching TV on Sunday night, and they announced that she had died over an overdose. And my first thing was, no, she didn't. He killed her. I can't prove it, and I probably shouldn't say it, but I will take that to my grave. He either did it or he had someone do it. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards, and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified financial planner certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. 
We need to go back in time now, to about seven months before Adrian died. Jackie had returned from the prosecutor's office in South Carolina. Now she was at home in Atlanta, and Mystery Steve was still in town. Change of plans, he said. He wasn't moving to Dallas after all. Hey, Jackie. Steve, it's my pleasure to call you. Talk to you later. Bye. End of message. Jackie was surprised at this news, but she didn't question it. She was glad her boyfriend was sticking around. But that good feeling didn't last. Now that Jackie's allegations had put James Brown at the center of a rape investigation, a bunch of scary things started happening. She says she got threatening phone calls, people telling her to back off the case. Someone left a dead animal outside her door. Around this time, Jackie was meeting with her psychologist, Larry Largent. The sound you hear in the background, by the way, is me typing notes on my laptop. I had some concerns for my own safety at times with her. My office looked into the parking lot, and I usually knew the cars except for when I get a new client or something. But I became aware there were some strange vehicles arriving, usually an hour or so before she was due. Uh, strange people coming by trying to peer in my door. So that was unsettling enough, and it got worse from there. Largent worked alongside another therapist who counseled Jackie, named Mark Pokosnik. One day something crazy happened to Jackie's psychological records after Pokosnik left them in his vehicle. It was broken into. The only thing they took was the records. Pokosnik confirmed this story when I asked him about it. Jackie's confidential records had fallen into the wrong hands. They were out there somewhere, visible to someone who had no business reading them. No one was charged with the break-in or the theft of the records, but Largent put the blame on the James Brown machine. Their objective was to neutralize her, either by getting her labeled as crazy or a liar, or if all else failed, they'd probably go to other things. Yeah, Jack and Steve, just going to wish you a happy birthday. Hope you're having a good time tonight. I'll uh, give you a call tomorrow afternoon. Bye. A week after her birthday, Jackie and Steve watched the 4th of July fireworks at Lenox Square in Atlanta. They left early because Steve said he couldn't handle the sound of explosions. Jackie chalked this up to some kind of combat-related trauma. She and Steve continued to see each other until right around Labor Day, when he really did leave town. And he didn't just leave. He cut off all contact. There was no way to reach him. And I actually thought that I was going to get married <laughs> because when he left that time, he said, I'm sending you a ring. And I went to the mailbox every day because I thought a ring was coming. It never did. Jackie was crushed. She thought she might get married soon. And now she was alone and confused. And she was getting more and more worried about her friend, Adrian. About two months after Steve disappeared, James Brown was arrested again after Adrian called 911 and was found with a bloody nose and swollen lip. Jackie heard about the arrest and the violence, and it terrified her. She and Adrian hadn't seen each other in years because Jackie was afraid of Adrian's husband. And Jackie didn't want to talk on the phone because Adrian had told her the phones were tapped. But Jackie fondly remembered Adrian. She kept thinking about their secret meeting at the steakhouse seven years earlier, when Adrian told her they were in it together, up against a machine. Now Adrian's warning felt truer than ever. Both women had accused James Brown of violent crimes that could send him back to prison. Jackie considered herself and Adrian major threats to James Brown. 
which meant they were both in grave danger. Around this time, out of the blue, Jackie got a surprising phone call from Dallas. It was Mystery Steve. He said, how are you? And I said, where have you been? And he said, I've been real busy. And I thought, yeah, right. And I said to him, they're going to kill Adrian or they're going to kill me. And he said, I want you to come to Dallas. You might think Steve was calling to get back together with Jackie, but he had a different request. Steve wanted the tape of the polygraph test Jackie had taken, in which she was asked about being raped by James Brown in the woods. Steve said he knew an investigator in Dallas who wanted to watch the tape of her test, and he said this investigator could help with Jackie's case against James Brown. Back then, Jackie didn't have a copy of the videotape. She didn't get that till later. But she wanted to see Steve, so she flew to Dallas without the tape. Steve was waiting for her at the airport. She hadn't seen him in almost three months. With Steve was another man she didn't recognize, a guy named Brian. He was the investigator Steve had been telling her about. Brian was also Steve's new housemate, which was news to Jackie. Brian was covered with tattoos. He was loud and profane. Jackie took an instant dislike to him, and the feeling was mutual. But still, Jackie was thrilled to see Steve, so they went back to Steve and Brian's apartment. Jackie brought her luggage into Steve's bedroom. Then the phone rang. Steve picked up, and the voice of the caller on the other end was loud enough for Jackie to hear. And I heard this girl say to him, so... Is she here? And he said, yeah, she just got here. And she said, so when is this project over? He said, well, you know, you got to give me some time. I got to get this finished. When he got off the phone, I looked at him and I said, I'm a project? And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, I heard what she said. And he goes, you're mistaken. You didn't hear that. Who was this guy? To Jackie, the whole situation was getting more and more suspect. And Steve wasn't too happy either when he found out Jackie hadn't brought the videotape. He asked her to go back to Atlanta and get a copy of the tape. Why should she go to all this trouble? Steve told her if she returned with the tape, he would help arrange an interview for her on the TV show Hard Copy. Jackie liked the idea. She thought telling the world what James Brown did to her might publicize Brown's history of violence against women and potentially save Adrian Brown's life. Because I felt like if it got out about him, then people would quit looking at her like she was crazy when she was talking about all of his abuse and his insanity. So Jackie went back to Atlanta with a plan. She called the former FBI agent who'd given her the polygraph test and asked for a copy of the tape. He sent it just before Christmas. Yeah, hi, Jackie. It's Steve. And won't be back into Dallas until Wednesday morning. I will call you then. I hope your Christmas was better than mine. Miss you. Talk to you later, Steve. In early January, Jackie went back to Dallas to see Steve again. This time, she had the tape. When they got to his apartment, she saw Brian, the investigator she didn't like. Jackie and Steve went out one night and came home to find Brian watching something on TV. There was a tape in the VCR. It was rolling. Jackie recognized herself on the screen and quickly realized Brian was watching her polygraph test. Brian had gone into her suitcase without permission to find the tape. All of a sudden, Brian started screaming, This will never fly! This will never fly! 
A word here about Brian. After hearing this story, I was able to confirm his identity through a business card Jackie found in the apartment. His full name is Brian Donahue, and he had a company called Emerald Services. The business card said, Consulting, Investigation, Process Serving. I checked his address history, and it matched the apartment where Jackie stayed in Dallas with Steve. Back to that night when Steve and Jackie came home to find Brian watching the polygraph tape. Though you'd think it would be Jackie getting upset at Brian for going through her luggage without permission, Brian was the one getting really angry. He seemed to think the tape wouldn't prove any of Jackie's claims about James Brown, to the media or to prosecutors looking to put him back in prison. Then, the situation escalated. He's screaming at me, and he started pushing me. And I grabbed the bar stool, and I was going at him with the bar stool. I was going to knock him through that glass plate door. Eventually, Steve got Brian and Jackie to stop fighting and calm down. But this wasn't the end of it. Apparently, a maintenance worker had heard the commotion and called the police. I went to the room. I was crying. And I heard this banging on the door, and it was Brian, and he's like, Steve, man, you got to come out. The police are here. And the police came in and said, you, come outside. And he told them to back against the wall. Were you glad that the police were coming? Did this feel like someone coming to your rescue? No, I was in shock. I didn't know what was going on. And okay, they took me out in the hallway and started asking me all these questions, and they asked me if I drank. They asked me to walk, you know, the line, and they said, who's hurting you? Jackie says she didn't tell the officers what Brian had done to her because she was afraid of Brian and what he might do to her. And I said, "Um, nobody's hurting me. He said, you wait here. And they went back there and got the IDs of Steve and of Brian. The police stayed at the apartment until they were convinced that Jackie was no longer in danger. Once the police left... I remember Steve looking up, and he goes, this has to be taken care of immediately. If this gets back to the agency, we're in a lot of trouble. And he said, you better get up in the morning and get this whole thing erased. The agency? Which agency were Steve and Brian working for? Jackie was too afraid to ask, but she filed this information away. The next morning, Brian got up early and left. When he came back, he told Steve, it's taken care of. Everything's taken care of. Everything's taken care of. What did that mean? Was this long-haired, tattooed, annoying guy a government agent? I wasn't able to talk to Brian Donahue. He died in 2012. But I did talk to his wife, who confirmed he'd been in Dallas in 1996. But she said he was a banking consultant who wouldn't have taken part in an operation like the one Jackie described. Could Steve's roommate really get the previous night's police report erased? It was another piece of the puzzle that could help me solve the mystery of James Brown. So I asked the Dallas Police Department for copies of all reports related to Steve's address. The Dallas PD said it had nothing on file. But I figured if anyone could get a police report erased, it would have to be someone with very particular credentials. I filed a request with the CIA for any documents they had on Brian Donahue, but the CIA said they could neither confirm nor deny having any. Steve and Brian's behavior got even stranger after Brian watched Jackie's videotape. One night at a bar, Steve urged Jackie to drink some whiskey. She said she didn't drink. Steve insisted. So Jackie gave in. And I took a sip of it. 
Ever since then, Jackie has wondered what was in that drink, because when she woke up, her sense of time was off. It was a full day later than she thought it would be. When I woke up, I was in my boots and clothes, laying on top of the bed, which is totally not me. I would never do that. And I got up and I walked into the room and Steve was sitting on the couch. It was probably three or four in the morning. And I said, what are you doing up? And his eyes were all red and glassy. And he goes, Brian went down to get the paper. And Brian walks in and the first words out of his mouth was, you're too late. She's dead. And he threw the newspaper at me. This was the morning of January 7th, 1996. And Brian had thrown a copy of the Dallas Morning News at her. Jackie showed me the newspaper. She still has it all these years later. Near the bottom of page 25A is a story that says Adrian Lois Brown, wife of singer James Brown, died in Los Angeles while recovering from cosmetic surgery. The cause of death was unknown. I lost it. I thought she was murdered. Jackie went to the bedroom and cried so hard that her body shook. She and Adrian had been like sisters. They had promised to keep each other safe. And Jackie couldn't help thinking that she'd failed. The way Jackie saw it, Adrian stood in the path of the James Brown machine, and the machine had rolled over her. Soon, the pending domestic violence case against James Brown would be dismissed for lack of a living victim. Jackie would eventually find out what happened with the rape investigation she had set into motion. That case would soon be closed without any charges against James Brown. And the reason made no sense to Jackie. The prosecutor in South Carolina said they couldn't be sure where exactly Jackie had been in the van in the woods, and thus, they couldn't prove a crime happened in their jurisdiction. But Jackie didn't know any of that yet. She was stuck here in this Dallas apartment with two men who didn't seem the least bit sorry that Adrian was dead, including Steve, the man she had thought she loved, but who was getting scarier by the day. He stopped me under the door of that entrance into the bedroom and he said yeah Jackie have you ever met the angel of death and I said yes in Aiken South Carolina in the woods and he said no you're looking at him now and I never saw as cold of eyes in my whole entire life they were like shark eyes I didn't know him anymore and he said I want you to know that for the rest of your life every day you need to look in the mirror and say to yourself I am one lucky girl because I let you live. I think he kept me alive, and they went for Adrian. They were going to take one of us down, and they chose her. I knew I was in serious trouble, and I knew I needed to get out. Steve seemed to be telling Jackie he could have killed her, and that he still could if she didn't stay in line. Jackie felt trapped. She was 800 miles from home with men she suspected of drugging her and plotting to kill her friend. And getting back to Atlanta wouldn't be easy. My plane ticket was stolen, and it was inside my suitcase. I didn't have any money with me because there was money missing from my wallet. This trip had started as a getaway to Dallas to reunite with the man she loved. But it had all gone unimaginably wrong. Jackie had no plane ticket back to Atlanta and no way to buy another one. She thought of going to the police, but she no longer trusted them. 
So when Steve and Brian weren't paying attention, she made several phone calls. She called the Beverly Hills Police Department in California, which was handling the investigation of Adrian Brown's death, and told a detective that Adrian had been murdered. She says she also called Hard Copy, the TV show where Steve said he'd help her get an interview. The producers at Hard Copy had no idea who Steve was, which made her think this was one more lie he'd told her. But they were intrigued by Jackie's story. So later, they called her back at the apartment to get more details. And Brian answered the phone, and Steve was standing there, and Brian looked at Steve, and he goes, it's Hard Copy. And his face just changed really funny, and he goes, um, she can't come to the phone. She's uh, mentally ill. She's just gotten out of a mental institution, and she doesn't know what she's saying, and she can't come to the phone. So hard copy was out, and now Jackie felt more alone than ever. It would be hard to explain all she'd been through with Steve in the last nine months, much less prove it. Then again, she did have that Polaroid picture of him, the one she'd tricked him into taking with her at the bar. She had it in her suitcase. But here's the catch. They had gone into my stuff, and they had found the picture. And he got very mad at me, and he said, they will kill you over this picture of me. You had no right to take this picture. You deceived me. According to Jackie, Steve didn't say who they were. No, he just said, if they come into your house and find this picture, you're dead. But Jackie wasn't going to let go of that snapshot without a fight. She'd seen Steve put it in his coat pocket. Other than the answering machine messages, the picture was the only tangible piece of evidence that Mystery Steve existed. Steve finally agreed to let Jackie return to Atlanta. It seemed he and Brian had no more use for her in Dallas. So he bought her a new plane ticket. And when they were leaving the apartment together for the last time, she made an excuse to go back inside. And I had seen him put it in his coat pocket. And I went in the closet really quick, and I looked in that jacket, and the picture was there. And I stuck it in my pants and ran out the door with him. Jackie pulled off this little heist a few days after Adrian's death, just before she left Dallas. She still doesn't know why Steve and Brian let her go. These guys had stolen her belongings, fought with her, and possibly slipped something into her drink so she would pass out. They'd taken her plane ticket and held her against her will, all while she was grieving for the death of her best friend. It had been a traumatic visit, to put it mildly, and she was relieved at the prospect of returning home to Atlanta. So when Steve bought her a new plane ticket and took her to the airport, she didn't ask questions. She and Steve sat in a restaurant at the airport, waiting for her flight to board. He looked up at me and he said, So, Jackie, what do you think people that work for the CIA would wear. And I said, clothes? (laughs) I would hope they wear clothes. And he goes, no, what type of clothes do you think they would wear? And I said, I would think they wear all kinds of clothes. You ask him, do they have some kind of little cloak and dagger and hat and all that that they wear with an umbrella? And he looked at me and he said, I'm with the CIA, Jackie. By now, Jackie didn't know what to believe. I was just cold. I was numb. There were no emotions coming out of me. When she heard the announcement her flight was boarding, Jackie grabbed her luggage and headed to the gate. I felt like a numb ghost walking away. That's the best way I can explain it. All I knew is something had gone horribly wrong in Dallas, Texas. Jackie walked toward the jetway, taking one last look at Steve. 
this man she once loved, who called himself the Angel of Death and said he worked for the CIA. It was the last time she ever saw him. And I turned around and I said, hey, Steve. And he goes, yeah. And I held up the picture and I said, I have the photo. And he was livid. And I went towards the plane and I did not look back. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. In January 1996, while Jackie was stuck at the apartment in Dallas, a police detective was getting to work on a new case in California. Coincidentally, he was also a Steve. Steve Miller, a former Army Ranger and a 15-year veteran of the Beverly Hills Police Department. Detective Miller was at roll call one Monday morning when the boss told him to head to a place called Hidden Garden. Miller knew it well. The plastic surgery industry was booming in Southern California in the 90s, and the Hidden Garden was a place where patients went to recover. I went out to the, the location and with my partner, and uh, the place was locked up tight. There was nobody there. We couldn't get any response. Adrian Brown had died two days earlier. A patrol officer made a report at the scene, but Miller didn't have much else to go on. At this time, there's no reason to think that there's anything wrong other than People don't usually die from plastic surgery. The uh, coroner said there was a lot of painkillers that were were taken in as evidence. She had some bottles on the bedside. So did she overdose? That's the first thing we think of. You know, There didn't seem to be anything there that was apparent from the surgery that would have caused her death. There was no bleeding, so on and so forth. An autopsy found that Adrian Brown had died of PCP intake and heart disease. The coroner's report said no foul play or sinister purpose was suspected. So it seemed like a pretty straightforward case of a drug overdose. Except Miller did find it odd that no one involved in Adrian's surgery or recent medical care would talk to him. It was around this time when he started getting calls from Jackie. And she said she was from Atlanta and she was Adrian Brown's best friend and that she had been murdered. Of course, that opened my eyes. And so I talked to her at length and how do you know this and... What are you basing it on? And, and she was all over the place. She was really shook up and really hard to talk to. I asked, you know, what's going on with you? And she kind of dodged around that for a while and said she was in Dallas, Texas. Jackie tried to lay it all out for Miller. Adrian had a pending domestic violence case that could have sent James Brown back to prison. She knew too much about Brown and his associates, and someone wanted to silence her. Plus, there was all that stuff that had just happened to Jackie in Dallas, which also seemed related to James Brown somehow. Jackie tried to explain about Steve and Brian and the drugging and the newspaper and Brian taunting her about Adrian's death. Well, at that point, I'm going, these guys are involved in this thing. There's something going on. There's, this is not just an overdose death. There's something going on. This is strange. Miller says he tried to find out more about what happened in Dallas even called the Dallas Police Department looking for that report from the night Brian yelled and fought with Jackie and the cops showed up. This was the report that Brian told Mystery Steve he'd taken care of. 
Was there any report written? Doesn't look like it because they couldn't find anything. Without anything firm to support Jackie's story and no other leads on Adrian Brown's death, Miller moved on to his other cases. And about five years after Adrian died, Miller retired from detective work without finding any proof of foul play in Adrian Brown's death. Fast forward to 2017. This was the year that Jackie called me for the first time. She told me I should ask Detective Miller about the Adrian Brown case, so I emailed him. His reply got my attention. I think I have one piece of the puzzle that I kept because it was only made available to me just before I retired. After sending me this email, Detective Miller retrieved a box from his closet. It contained some old documents related to the Adrian Brown case. And now, when he looked at them again, he noticed something he'd never noticed before. Valuable information about the case of Adrian Brown had been there all along, in a box in the closet, deep in an unread notebook. The notebook came from a woman Jackie Hollander had never met, and it seemed to corroborate Jackie's suspicions about Adrian's death. I became crestfallen. I could not believe that this is here, that I never saw it. That if I'd have seen this 16, 17 years ago, I'd, I'd have been standing on that jackass's front porch. This is like the smoking gun. On the next episode of The James Brown Mystery, do you ever lie awake at night thinking about this case? I do now. (laughs) I do now. Things I'm telling you now, no one has ever told. His children don't even know it. I know he murdered James Brown's wife. I think it was part of the plan to make it look like an overdose. This was premeditated murder. The James Brown Mystery is hosted and reported by me, Thomas Lake. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our senior producer is Felicia Patinkin, and our producers are Rachel Cohn, Anne Lagamayo, Lori Galaretta, and Jennifer Lai. Our associate producers are Emmanuel Johnson, Nathan Miller, and Sonia Tun. And our production assistant is Eden Getachew. Our story editor is David Weinberg, and our production manager is Tamika Balance Kolasny. Liz Roberts and Kira Posey lead audience strategy for our show, and Jameis Andrus and Nicole Pesseru designed our artwork. Erica Wong is our mix engineer and sound designer. Selena Uthabe is our assistant sound engineer, and Dan Dezula is CNN Audio's senior manager of production operations. Theme and original music composed by David Steinberg and Nathan Miller. Special thanks to Mia Taylor, Courtney Coop, Katie Hinman, Lindsay Abrams, Robert Mathers, Dalila Paul, Andrea White, Anissa Gray, Janita Du, Ram Ramgapal, Lisa Namaro, and John Dianora. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner? a CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified Financial Planner Certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.
Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.